conflict is a natural part of any close relationship. And as we know with children, it's not the conflict that's the problem. It's the repair, taking responsibility for the person that did the behavior that caused the impact. Can you slow down and take a pause and be willing to recognize the impact that you've had on the other person? I think that's, you know, and being willing to listen about it. If you're shame-based, just slowing down, listening, and taking responsibility for your impact is brutal for some parts of some people. How do you respond to conflict when it comes up? How do you navigate difference and the discomfort it brings up? And what practices do you lean on when ruptures happen in relationships and repairs are needed? Three years ago, at the end of May of 2020, I launched this podcast during a time of immense conflict, discomfort, and rupture. Little did I know when I first met with my producers in the fall of 2019, we would end up dropping the first episodes of The Unburdened Leader days after George Floyd's murder, while we were sheltering in place because of a global pandemic, bringing to light the depth of the ruptures in relationships within ourselves, with our institutions, and within our communities. Now, how we choose to address ruptures is at the heart of so much pain and struggle we still face today in our own lives and in the spaces we live and work. And based on the conversations I have every day with leaders or just sitting in the stands during my son's baseball games, we still have a long way to go on how we navigate the intersection of conflict, difference, and discomfort. And before we dig into today's three-year anniversary episode, I'd be honored if you took a moment to rate, review, and share this podcast with someone you may think may benefit from it. Your support over the last three years has been invaluable, and these types of ratings and reviews help more people hear about the show. Thank you so much. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with humans who navigate life's challenges and lead in their own ways. Our goal is to learn how they address the burdens they carry, how they learn from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. Conflict and discomfort are inevitable in all areas of work and life. Now, most of us carry some kind of relational or betrayal trauma, and these burdens impact how we lead and move through conflict, discomfort, and difference. So when a rupture happens, there's often a rush to find comfort with some kind of bid for repair or a deep avoidance. But if we don't do the work to reflect on our own system's needs first, we can end up doing more harm and continue to feel hooked by a situation. Now, I recently chatted with a very successful business owner who shared with me a conflict she's working through with a fellow business owner. They planned a really cool collaboration, but after some reflection, she shared how they decided to pause the event. But the aftermath led to confusion, miscommunication, anger, and blame. Now, this business owner is also a survivor of multiple relational traumas, and she's worked so hard on her boundaries and her communication and her support systems. And she was curious about what she was feeling while sitting with a lot of discomfort because she felt awful. She noted how she hates disappointing people and also felt really good about honoring her boundaries in the discussion. Yet it also felt really uncomfortable while it felt very true. And as she continued to share her experience, she'd said something that caused me to pause. 
And it reminded me of something I hear from many business owners who share a similar history of relational trauma and betrayal trauma. And she said, parts of me want those involved to know my perspective and to understand my experience. I want them to know my side. And I shared how this is so common and how starting by first doing what we call in internal family systems, you know, a U-turn, the Y-O-U-turn, and reflecting on those parts who want others to see her a certain way and to understand her perspective is crucial to start there. Because when you do a U-turn, you develop a practice of learning to turn your attention towards yourself and away from the external environments and the need for validation. I noted that no matter what others do, this desire to be understood and to make others see their part in the conflict needs to start with a U-turn. I also added how important it is that she's solid with her inner team first and foremost, no matter what others end up understanding. And I loved how she reflected that if she decided to do a return to the relationship after spending some time getting clear on what her inner system needed from her first and foremost was key. And she knew that she did not take the step she would stay hooked with the other individual involved with this situation, leaving her with the sense that she'll only feel safe and at peace if others changed. Now, my hope was that our U-turn would help her navigate the conflicts and discomforts within. And then after some clarity, she'd make a decision on how she wants to return to the relationship without giving up her power and peace. And when I shared that as a trauma survivor, this landed with her and she did not want to stay hooked in the situation. And she made the commitment to sit with the discomfort of things not being settled for a minute and to take some time being with her inner system before deciding when and how to do a return to the ruptured relationship. Shoot, I personally experienced whiplash from all the U-turns and the subsequent returns to those I'm in relationship with in my life. This is hard work. But without this internal reflection, we can often default to actions that result in the opposite of our desired intention. But this work gives us more choices. And when we have more choices, we're less likely to feel trapped, panicked, and stuck. And when we feel like we have more agency in our relationships, we feel more connected and close to those we lead and love. The U-turn, return dance helps us lead ourselves through our reactivity and vulnerabilities, especially when the stakes are high. And it also helps us have more compassion towards ourselves and others instead of moving to the common defaults of shame, blame, or disconnection. Now, when we speak of our inner experiences in a self-led way, we increase the chances of others staying open so we can be heard. And my guest today is the master of the U-turn return process and expanded the internal family systems model to help us experience more connection and intimacy in all of our relationships. Tony Herbine Blank is the founder and director of the Intimacy from the Inside Out training programs. She's a senior trainer for the IFSI Institute and has been developing curriculum for the application of IFS to couples therapy for many years. She teaches nationally and internationally, delivering workshops and trainings for therapists interested in using IFS with multiple systems. She's co-authored two books on her methodology and enjoys time with her partner and her animals in the mountains of Durango, Colorado, where she lives. Now, I want y'all to pay attention to when Tony talks about the power of the U-turn and the power of the pause when triggered so you can speak to the other person in a relational way about what's going on with you. Notice when Tony talks about the impact of our shame wounds 
and how we navigate difference. And listen for Tony's desire for all of us around conflict and how we handle ruptures. Now, please welcome Tony Herbine Blank to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Tony, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. There's so much I want to cover with you today, but I thought I would just start hearing a little bit more about your journey um, and, and to share with us what got you interested in the field of psychiatric nursing. Well, that is an interesting question um, because I never was interested in psychiatric nursing. <laughs> so my story is that I was in women's health and starting to embark on a midwifery program. So I was a nurse. My, you know, I was a nurse originally, labor and delivery nurse, and then I was going back to graduate school for midwifery, and I took a family systems therapy course and a long story. And, you know, sometime later, I decided that I wanted to be a different kind of midwife (laughs) and, um, you know, do work in the field of um, mental health, if you were, or, and so rather than going back and getting a whole other degree in a whole nother area like psychology or social work, I just stayed with nursing. So then I decided that I was going to get to be a therapist through through my degree in psychiatric nursing. So that is how I ended up there. Okay. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. I didn't know that about your story. And I'm curious then you went from, you know, that that segue into midwifery and labor and delivery to then doing clinical psychotherapy work to developing a relational model. <laughs> That's like one of the foundation. And so tell me a little bit about that transition from getting into the field to then developing one of the most, you know, well-studied and beloved models of relational therapy. Well, and as you know, this is an offshoot of IFS, yep. internal family system yep. therapy. So I'm imagining you've done other interviews with other IFS trainers and you know, lots and lots of credit, of course, to Dick Schwartz, who had some ways of working with couples, which I learned when I was in my IFS basic training, and already a pretty well-established couple therapist at that time. And I, uh, a couple things. One is that I was in a practice where therapists were sending couples to me who were really suffering and really struggling. And the models of therapy that I was working with at the time didn't do everything that needed to happen in those sessions because of the the level of what we would say in IFS is blending or affect dysregulation or trauma. And I was looking for something. I was on the, the search for something that would help people anchor inside of themselves because so much self-loathing and shame was getting projected onto the partnership and we couldn't really get any work done that would stick. That was my experience. So I tootled around and did different trainings and by accident fell into IFS, very much by accident, and was very taken with it eventually, not right away. Um, I was not one of those people that said, oh my gosh, here it is. I was one of those people that said, what the heck? <laughs> you know, 
So then during that training, and Dick was, you know, very involved in those trainings back in the day. And again, he had this way of working with couples. And so I started thinking, how can we make this more accessible for therapists, for IFS therapists? How can we develop these protocols, add more protocols, create a training? And so little by little, that's how I started on that journey. So um, it started as an idea and then has over the many years just, you know, snowballed into what it is today. That's the journey there. And what I found was that in couple therapy, people being learning how to differentiate internally and hold on, you know, hold on to themselves in very difficult conversations and very stressful uh, dilemmas and situations really improved that work <laughs> that I was already doing. I, I I intuitively know what it means to hold on to myself, but I, I, yeah, can you unpack that a little bit more? Kind of go operationalize that a little bit. What you know, how I hold on to myself in a hard conversation. What do you mean by that? So intimacy from the inside out is a model of differentiation, and that. How I define that is I'm a separate individual human being that can stay connected to another human being simultaneously. So in other words, a lot of what I hear people in relationship say is, I can't be myself with you. And, you know, that's a big theme. You, you know, I can't be myself with you. So part of the journey is, can you be yourself and be able to be present to a different self and hmm. and when that when those differences begin to trigger us as they always do in close relationships can i not lose myself or lose you you know this is the, i think this is a big dilemma for people in relationship i can either have myself or i can be loved by you but i can't have both and our message is absolutely you can have both and you need to learn about yourself first <laughs> you know hmm. So the invitation is what happens to you that you lose contact with what you believe, what you need, what you want, what your hopes are, what your fears are, who you are as a fully developed individual. What happens that you lose that when the people closest to you are different? Mm. I'm just thinking of conversations that I've been having on repeat lately, uh, people saying things like, I can't show up as my true self. It it will. I can't. It, I'll 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 lose my job. Um, I'll lose this friendship. You know, or that'll escalate. In, you know, tensions in my my marriage. So I'm thinking not just in a romantic couple yeah. per se, but all relationships. And I've been hearing this, and then people saying, "But I don't know who I am. How do I even know who I That's am? Is this something that IFIO?" works of people on discovering who the heck they are and what it feels like when who they are, like where they end and someone else begins? Absolutely. That's a number one step. What's coming up inside of you in relationship to this other person, whether it's a partnership or a work situation or a friendship and, and how you're going to express yourself is going to be different based on those relationships. You know, I mean, you also have to take into consideration what is safe to self-disclose and how do I self-disclose? You know, it's bringing me back to even this kind of epiphany I had in my 20s where I realized I was like 
one way at work. I was one way like with like people at my church. I was one way with my roommates. I was one way with my family. And I thought that was normal. And then I fell in love. (laughs) And then all of a sudden it was like all shook up and I realized, oh my gosh, it was just like, I always thought that's kind of what you were supposed to do is just, but what, and that's just from my own story and the kind of chaos at home is I learned how to adapt to each environment. So yeah, I'm just thinking through that. And I'm wondering, I want to make sure folks have a really good foundation of IFIO. I have not taken your training, but of course I've read a lot about it. Walk me through, and I think you touched on a little bit, the your first took your thought process in developing this model, and maybe, I know there's some phases in it, so maybe just take us through the foundational kind of approach, this like the model, the ideology of this approach. Well, first of all, you know, go. it, it really is based in Dick's work. So I, I mm-hmm. want to say that, that IFS is IFIO, and IFIO is IFS. So people that are interested could read about both, actually. And, you know, IFS, the principles of IFS are that the hu- human beings are multiple naturally. It's a non-pathological state. Um, so we have many parts. And as you were talking about all those different adaptations that you did, I was thinking, okay, we're really creative parts. And I think women in this culture do this anyway, like we're raised to adapt. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so there's a part that adapted here and a part that adapted there. So that's how we see it as well. That's mm-hmm. a basic assumption. And the other assumption which is where the psycho-spiritual aspect of IFS comes in, is that all human beings have a self. And that word gets tossed around in a lot of different places, you know, in a lot of different traditions. But here it's, you know, uh, an inner resource, inner wisdom, uh, something to connect with internally. So you were asking earlier, well, how do I hold on to my self? So we talk about being able to help people differentiate the difference between an aspect of their personality and their very own well of wisdom. Those are basic assumptions that we carry on from IFS. You know, I also have some beliefs, which is that human beings are growth seeking and that relationship is a way to heal and a little bit different than some of the attachment models, because in intimacy from the inside out, we start with a U-turn. We start with, we're going to go internally first and help you get to a place where you can know yourself a little bit better, um, understand how your relational wounding from childhood affects your present day relationship, um, You know, do that journey from past to present so that people can work out what's happening in the present and not have so much history laced in their conversations, which is what I was finding in those early days of of being a couple therapist is how it was very difficult for people to differentiate between what's past and what present, what was present because it all felt present. Mm -hmm. So we have phases of the therapy, which start with building a rapport, if you will, with a therapist, creating a container, understanding what what people in relationship want and need from us as clinicians, um, talking about the model, how we work, what are, you know, what we believe is possible. 
And then we have a set of nonlinear protocols that starts with the dance of conflict, you know, understanding what drives that repeated, you know, that repeated fight, which gets exhausting for people, um, you know, the dance of conflict, if you will, and then beginning to offer invitations based on that dance that people are doing around communication, healing, working with shame, learning about repair, visioning, what kind of relationship do you really want to have? Um, you know, and then it's, a again, it's nonlinear. So we're back and forth and back and forth. And, you know, coming back to the people we're working with to find out, is this the trajectory that you were hoping for? Has that changed? What has healed? Where have you grown? Where are you backsliding? So very collaborative model. You train predominantly therapists or folks that are helping professionals. And I'm thinking about leaders also who are caring for their teams and their colleagues. And Mm -hmm. they're the folks that are the problem solvers and how to, or even parents too, (laughs) your kids have stuff. So there's, there's a lot of, I think this model you know, this expanded IFS model really helps us uh, in, in a lot of relationships. But you talk about attachment and, you know, in, in our spaces, we all kind of geek out about attachment and there's like, we have all these nerdy conversations, but I feel like there's almost been, harm is a strong word, but it doesn't do folks a service just to go, oh, this is my attachment style and you didn't meet that need to their partner, their friend, their colleague. So you failed me. Like there's, I hear those conversations a lot. And Uh I'm wondering how IFIO kind of differs from some of these other popular relational models and relational approaches. So again, I'll use this word differentiation. Great. uh, Which implies for us in this method understanding yourself and creating an in an inner attachment an internal landing place a love a connection a witnessing of one's own parts as you will your own wounding um, your own vulnerability being able to be in a healing relationship there is going to help with what you just talked about it's going to to support you to be able to be there for your partner in ways that you might not have been able to when you were lost on the inside or your own wounding was taking you over all the time, you know? Mm. So we start inside and, you know, we refer to it as a U-turn. Lots of people use that expression, but we're going to add, we ask people when you're triggered to pause and understand what's happening in here first so that you can then return to the other person and speak for what's going on in a relational way that invites people into more curiosity about what's going on with you. Because the impulse of the entire protective system is to blame and shame. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it, it happens everywhere. I am guilty of this in my own intimate relationships. (laughs) No, (laughs) learn how to speak and listen really differently based on your understanding of yourself. And we see the partner as an incredible source of healing and support, but they're not responsible. We're not, they're not responsible 
for that. You know, I remember one of my trainers once speaking to, to a group and saying, you know, your partner is not obligated to meet your needs. And of course, it was like a stunning moment because who wants to feel obligated? You know, that that's not relational. That doesn't feel cozy, you know. But number one, probably the person you're living with or close to, the people meet your needs sometimes, even if you think that they're not, <laughs> you know. And then there's a way to, to request to have your needs met um, in a way that invites people into your world as opposed to, I'm not getting this from you, so therefore fill in the blank, right? What are some better ways to invite that support versus if you loved me, you'd take out the trash, you know, <laughs> or, you know, if, you know, if you've been listening, you'd know that you know, something, you know, I'm just right. usually it's around remote controls or trash or the temperature of the house or something like that. But yeah, what is, what is a way to say, gosh, I have this need that uh -huh. keeps getting missed. Uh -huh. And I want to let you know without kind of like you suck as a human because you missed my needs. <laughs> and don't we just have parts that want to do that? You know, which, which only oh. feels good for about 10 seconds, right? You know, if that, and then the yeah. hangover is worse. Yeah. 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 Well, I will quote, I'm married to a man, and uh, I will quote my wise husband who once said to me, you know, I really am on your side, <laughs> and I really do care about what's going on with you, and if you've got something going on inside of you, because I leave the kitchen a mess or whatever, I'm available to help out if you can speak for what's going on in you. But if it comes in the form of a criticism, then I'm just feeling bad about myself and my protectors are going to push you, push back on you. And I thought that is so, that there it is right there in a nutshell. Can I speak for my need based on myself instead of you know, how dare you leave the kitchen like this when I've been working so hard all day, right? <laughs> so, okay. But let just, just to be provocative, because I wouldn't right, necessarily right. relate to this sar sarcasm, of course. Yeah. Um, but what if I'm trying just to help someone know exactly the roadmap of how I want the kitchen done or the tone that I want things communicated or how I want things organized. If I just am very explicit, my intent, my parts of me are like, if they just know the roadmap and follow the roadmap, then all will be well. Right, Tony? Right. Yes, of course. I'm in many parts that are in agreement, but I also have many parts that have been a couple therapist for a long time. And I know that doesn't really work. You know, Dang I mean, it. it doesn't work because there can be an aspect of bullying in something like that. So in other words, my way or the highway, like this is the only way I'm going to be satisfied. And what I try to help people explore is one, one, where did that come from? First of all, where did that belief that there's only one way to get something done? Where did that come from? With a lot of care and curiosity. And no shaming, because I really do believe that everything is present for a reason, right? I mean, nothing is random. We don't just love a clean kitchen out of nowhere. So mm -hmm. where did the, where does the belief that things need to be done this certain way, where did that come from? And lots of validation about that, because we learn, as you know, not just about 
kitchen cleaning, but everything from many generations passed down beliefs about relationships and who, you know, and then to, to explore what happens if it's not done the way that you want it, or if the need is not being met in the way you exactly want it, what happens then? And then also to learn how to ask to have a need met that's not bullying, that's not bullying, that is relational, which says, I want to invite you into my world and I could use some help, <laughs> you know, and, and also to know that you're in relationship with somebody who's different, who has a different mind, who has a different sensibility, who has different needs. And can that become a conversation and a negotiation instead of it's got to be done my way, you know? Mm. Um, and because it creates threat when it has to be done my way, it causes, in, in my experience many times, it invites the other person to get guarded. And that's not what we want when we're negotiating, getting needs met. And also, I will say the last thing, even though both of our parts are not going to agree, how someone cleans up the kitchen is not actually an emotional need. What's underneath that request? And for me, I can't speak for everybody, it's an, it's an exploration. It's really about, I need you and I need some help. It's not really about the dishes, as much as I have parts that want to rebel against that. It's really deeper than, you know, and there's a difference between a want and a need, of course. But if we can learn, if couples can learn or people in relationship can learn about vulnerability as a way to create more intimacy and safety and help people actually be able to speak for that core need, which is I'm feeling alone or I need some help or are you with me? Um, then in my experience, that conversation goes so much more easily and with more connection because it's not about I'm good, you're bad, I'm right, you're wrong. You know, it, it's not about that anymore. It's more about how do we stay connected within the context of our differences. Yeah, I'm racing through my, because the kitchen analogy is a perfect perfect one for me and my husband too. Because and and I, I really appreciate I will say this, but I really appreciate this sense of my way or the highway. It, it really it comes to be like a power dynamic. It's That's more right. than just like someone's going to go. It's like, I, I don't care about your needs. It's it's do it my way or I'm going to keep lashing out. Uh -huh. And let me tell you, when I did the U-turn and kind of had some reflection and listened to what was reflected back to me when I heard how some of what I thought was helpful, or at least I was also protecting my system because I'm actually really, my nervous system is very sensitive to space. And so having it too chaotic is really unrattling. And my husband and I said this not as a criticism. I probably would have years ago, but he doesn't notice those things. And it's organized to him if he knows where it's at. That's uh -huh. all. I'm, you know? in and so I'm in the very same relationship. Oh, with the very sensibility. You know, there are some of us yeah. very attuned to the external space because of what's going on inside. You know, I've come to find yeah. out you know, the more chaos I feel on the inside, the harder it is to deal with the chaos on the outside. But I think it's it's a hard one. And realizing what I thought was helping me and helping him help me was actually the exact opposite, had the opposite effect. Uh -huh. And so like, I really appreciate that approach versus if you just did things my way, it'd be better, which is horrible. Like, ew, that's 
who I want to be. And I don't, but it, there's also that, you know, this mantra that I've heard is like, do I want to be right or do I want to be in this relationship? Right. Exactly. And so even if, even if I'm like, listen, my way of organizing is better, but, or what is this relationship more important? That was a real growth edge for me. And I, and that's a on, on repeat thing. I will have a conversation I'll have with clients too. Um, but the other side of the coin I hear a lot from people is I don't want to speak my needs. And if I do, it, it diminishes that need. They should read my mind. Mm-hmm. They should know. And if I put myself out there, I'm setting myself up to be disappointed and hurt or attacked. And right. I'm curious how you respond to that. And I hear it over and over and over again. I only want to have to ask once. And I I believe, I have a belief, and maybe, maybe there's some... Um, relational neurobiology to back this up. I don't, probably there is, but I do believe that human beings have parts, little young parts that are seeking perfect attunement. Mm. And that it's the thing that we wanted and longed for and often didn't get when we were in that tender newborn, you know, time. And so those parts are still seeking that, you know, and they're young. It's very young. That voice of, Mm. can you just feel me? You know, can you just feel me and just know, I don't want to have to tell you because of all the things that you just said, I'm going to be shamed. If you say no, I'm going to be attacked. Um, You won't do it anyway. So I call this the need ball when I'm working in trainings. I call it the need ball. <laughs> and okay. you know that most of us in this culture, um, and I don't know all the cultures everywhere, but you know, I will say it has been my experience that people develop ways to try to get needs met that don't land. It doesn't land. So that's what I call it the need ball. It's like a a bowling ball. So, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm highly skilled at this or I was, I mean, things have definitely changed over the years. I've been married a long, long time, but, um, you know, I had a lot of shame about my emotional needs from my whole hit, from my history and et cetera, et cetera. So I would maybe roll the need ball in my husband's direction, hoping that he would get what it was, but it would be covert or it wouldn't be clear. There wasn't clarity around it because of all the things that you expressed. I'm, and, uh, and so the ball on a good day, the ball comes rolling toward him and he picks it up and he says, I know exactly what's going on. And on other days he's in his own process and he's like, there's a ball in the middle of the floor. What the heck am I supposed to do with this? You know? So it is part of the process of couple therapy in my, in my office to help people get clear because we're not clear. That has been my experience over and over again, mm. because we feel shamed about what we, you know, we have been shamed about what we need. And so it gets very convoluted with parts of us trying to express those needs in ways that, you know, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I've heard in my office, I have no idea what you're talking about right now. You know, it's like a different language, right? Yeah. <laughs> So it's a it a lot of people could use help with it actually is to learn how to speak differently and also how to receive the request differently. 
Mm. So, um, you know, that's, that's work. That is a work that can happen in therapy. So people can begin to have similar language and understand inside of themselves what makes it so challenging to be clear. No, I hadn't thought about that. And it's a Captain Obvious one, but yeah, the for folks who aren't clear with their needs or have fears about that, it probably when we do the you know flow back, it's to being shamed at such a young age uh-huh. for having needs, uh-huh. basic needs of probably connection right. uh, and community or just validation, all of those things that little kids want. That makes a lot of sense. And to see that as a data point, if it feels scary to say, I need this, to get curious about where that fear comes from first, almost, Mm -hmm. to get clear on what's going on internally so that you can hold space for the vulnerability of then returning to the relationship you're in and saying, hey, I really do this. And whether it's a boundary or just communicating an invitation for feeling love and connection or whatever that may be. And it's also it's also it. a piece of, of exploration for the person on the receiving end. Mm, tell me more. Which is what are you, well, what are you actually hearing? Because I, you know, it gets distorted in, <laughs> in both directions. And then the person receiving the request, if it's unclear or unkind, is gr- scrambling on the inside, number one, to figure out what this is and to stay with a little self-esteem, <laughs> you know, because if it's coming in, I shouldn't have to ask you and what's the matter with you. And I told you this already, then you have someone who's now scrambling for, am I still a worthwhile human being, you know, uh, deep down. So how to receive the request and then be able to either say yes or no in a loving way, as opposed to, I'm going to do this because if I don't, there's going to be hell to pay or get out of my face. I've already done this for you. I'm not doing it anymore. So it's really a a change in conversation, big time, I believe. It it almost like slows, like super, super slow motion, right? Uh, Right. Down to here, I have a need. Oh, what's coming up internally about wanting to communicate that need, attending to that, then communicating the lead, the need, and then hearing how that was heard clarifying uh-huh. if that needs to and and then having uh-huh. the space to have that dance and having that normalized it doesn't feel very efficient tony this feels just like <laughs> therapy speak i could just hear some other people outside of my clinical bubble or you know the helping professional bubble like oh my gosh y'all people are weird just just be human but it really is the most efficient way yes in the end, you know, because what, what I say to people is this can feel very formulaic and that doesn't feel spontaneous or good, but how has the other way been working? That's the question is if it's working fine, great, fantastic. You know, people, people can, you know, some people do this just fine. And there are other issues that are coming with, that's not my experience much, but you know, if you can get get yourself on a little bit of a roadmap and create a little bit more safety and kindness and goodwill around the differences in needs over time, then it will be, you know, Hey, I'm feeling a little out of control. Would you be, would you be available to just do this? And then the partner is not on the attack. I mean, they're not receiving an attack and it could be either sure, or I'll get to it when I can. And it doesn't create that young, 
I'm never going to get my needs met. I can't do this. So I really do believe that slow is fast. I really do. With you. But if you can set some things in place for a while and practice a different strategy after a while, just like anything that you practice, the competency will grow, hopefully. Um, But it's a great question to ask yourself, well, I don't really want to be in this kind of I, I, you know, it takes too long or it takes too much time or I don't have the time or whatever, but has the other way been effective mm-hmm. for getting your needs met? And this is kind of where my nerdy psychotherapy parts are like for folks who just don't want to do this, because if they really took a pause and checked in, there's just a ton there and that there's probably parts invested to not slowing down because it's a pressure cooker inside. Yeah, absolutely. And Sadly to say, a pressure cooker doesn't open its own lid. And if if we just leave it on the stove, <laughs> it's going to blow at some point, which is, you know, when I was talking about the, the, the kind of suffering I was seeing in my office all those years ago, that was it. That was two pressure cookers who had exploded, and now they're trying to stuff everything back inside the pots. And there's just so there's so much damage. So letting things brew, which I think we do as human beings, I just think we do that. Mm-hmm. And I also think that you're correct that slowing down to feel can feel bad. It's dangerous Scary. to a lot of people. Scary. Yeah, it's like, what are you asking me to do, Rebecca? Are you kidding me? I've built a life, so I don't have to do this. And I'm like, exactly. But what brought you to me is going to require require this so let's scaffold it we don't have to fire hose you but yeah the damage to self and others when that pressure cooker blows leading is hard leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned and connected to your values your mission your boundaries Navigating the inevitable conflict and controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. Now, I know you don't mind making hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Now, leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that it's both actionable and aligned. So when the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, When you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead. When time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your Unburdened Leader Coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you.
circling back a little bit, you touched on this, but I'd like to get more specific on your the most common reasons for relationship ruptures. What are like when you look back at your body of work in your office and in what you've heard from the therapists you train, what are the kind of top handful of reasons, um, common re- most common reasons for relationship ru- ruptures? In a word, I would say shame. <laughs> you know, the cycles of internal shaming and shamefulness and then how that gets projected. Um, you yeah. know, how the, the wounding from childhood, you know, um, you know, whether overt or covert, you know, children don't get, get out of childhood unscathed. You have children, you know, that there's, you know, there's incoming all the time. And then what, what we do with our shame wounds and how they get repaired or not, um, I believe plays a huge role I also think, uh, and this may also be related to differences, I think that it is, is we live in a culture where same is good, different is bad. You see this everywhere. I know you do. You know, that people that are that look different, that act different, that have a different sensibility, who have different needs, it becomes incredibly threatening to people. And I I do believe that this happens in relationship, that early in a romantic relationship, we're all good because we're programmed to be meeting the other person's needs, feeling them. It feels so good. It feels so delicious. And after a certain amount of time, we start to recognize, hold on a second, you know, hold on a second. I'm not, where is that person I fell in love with? You know, because the differences start to emerge. Our needs become more important than the other person's needs. You know, la-di-da-di-da, lots written on this, you know, not just by me. And we don't know how to negotiate differences. Many human beings don't. And so we either fight or we flee. We numb, you know, we, our nervous system starts to say unconsciously, oh, okay, we're back in childhood. This is no good. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what can we do to either try to get the other person to be different in many different strategies for trying to get the other person to change back to Mm. who they were when we fell in love, then that doesn't work. So then we say, well, maybe I can twist myself up into a pretzel and change myself so they'll love me again. Mm. That's not a good strategy. That doesn't work. Talking about not being able to hold on to yourself. And then, or then we're just going to start exiting in different kinds of ways. Sometimes it's a real, okay, bye-bye. Um, and which is uh, fine. You know, I don't have a thing about that, but you know, is it a conscious exit or is it, I'm just shutting down on myself. I'm shutting down on you. We're going to disconnect. Um, and then eventually leave in all different kinds of ways. So I don't know if I answered your question long, long winded, but I do think it's very, very difficult to deal with a different somebody who's different, you know? And at the intersection of those differences with shame, right? Because shame shuts down sitting in the vulnerability of that difference. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And shame says, you know, it, it's, it has its own flavors, but it's usually pretty consistent saying, you know, I, I suck, I'm not worthy. And who do you think, you know, who do you think you are, you know, to yeah. myself or to somebody right. else or both. Right. And uh-huh. and then difference comes up when, ooh, I don't know how 
to navigate. I might feel awkward. I might feel um, unprepared. I might worry what other people think. So I have to shut this down. And then we do that in ways that hurt ourselves, deny ourselves. And of course, if any, you know, deny others and them being just who they are. Um, that's an interesting trailhead of difference. It's a broad, it's a broad one, but it's a really good one for us to be thinking about. The reality is we all are our own unique person. You know, we have our own stories. We, you know, uh-huh. no one's a, no one's a monolith. they are archetypes and we have some things in common, you know, like I'm from the Midwest. So I could talk to my Midwestern people about certain things, but yeah, it's not, and we're looking for that, but difference. Whew. I'm just sitting with the intensity of that in our world today too. And you were talking about leadership and teams and, yes, you know, I think that the conversations are different when you're in an intimate relationship than when you're on a team. But I do think that we bring our history of relationship into a team yeah. as well. And all of this is relevant to a team, how deep a team member is willing to go or even wants to go or whether it's even safe to go is a whole nother conversation. But who am I in relationship is going to show up in any system that you find yourself in. And at the heart is understanding. This is what I mean. It's just a great foundational reminder is, you know, shame is this part of the spectrum of all human emotions. We all have the capacity, unless you have a lobotomy or you're a zombie, I always joke, but you know, and so understanding how shame shows up, what our triggers are, that's going to be essential for us to be engaged in any relationship so that we can respond in ways that don't turn on ourselves and others. That's foundational for wherever we show up and lead. Um, Reality is, is we all make mistakes in this too. And we end up, shame hijacks us and we respond to differences in ways that are out of alignment, not true to us, and we do harm. You know, walk me through a good apology, a good repair, and it's not mm-hmm. a one and done. I know that, <laughs> but walk me through like no, the, the stages of a good apology and how it differs from an apology that falls falls flat when, you know, when when harm is done, when we mess up in relationships. You know, my wish is that human beings in general would be less afraid of conflict. Be that's the first thing, because conflict. <laughs> Conflict is a natural part of any con- any close relationship. And as we know with children, it's not the conflict that's the problem. It's the repair. So, you know, that's just a wish that I would have is that, you know, conflict is not normal and people really afraid of conflict. Many people have parts who are very afraid of conflict because they've been on the receiving end of brutality yeah. around anger and conflict. So, of course, they are. But it's a normal phenomenon. And and I would say when I'm talking to people about who have felt betrayed, let's just say that, and there's many different kinds of ways to feel betrayed, rupture in relationship is taking responsibility for the person that did the behavior that caused the impact. Can you slow down and take a pause and be willing to recognize the impact that you've had on the other person. I think that's, you know, and being willing to listen about it and take responsibility for it. And those two things, if you're shame-based, just slowing down, listening and taking responsibility for your impact is brutal for some parts of some people. 
um, you know, it's really, really difficult. So it's, a, as you said, it's not a, it's not a one and done. This is a process that may take a lot of time and to be able to apologize or make amends and take responsibility for the action that you took, take some self-forgiveness if it's done well, right? Yeah. So if I'm busy hating myself for being such a little whatever um, in relationship to somebody else, then my repair is going to be very insincere because it's going to be laced with, let me see how fast I can do this and get it over with because I feel so bad about myself. So learning how to recognize yourself as a human being that does make mistakes and that does hurt other people goes a long way, I think, in, in repairing rupture, is being able to love yourself through a very difficult conversation so that you can listen more to the impact um, that 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 it's even though when people do feel betrayed, they have parts that do want to shame the other person. So it's it's a, it's a sensitive it's a sensitive conversation. But I would say you know making apologizing and making amends without it being shame based is really important. And you know there was a time in my life where I was going to do it. I was going to create a documentary <laughs> on how people apologize because it's a it's a what do I want to say? You know, when I listen or I ask people, how do you apologize? People are like, what? You know, I don't apologize. I have nothing to apologize for, you know. Uh, so this whole idea that you can repair a rupture um, is news to some people. You know, some people are, we just don't talk about it. But when that happens, I believe that the burden that was created by that rupture now gets another burden. As things are not repaired, the relationship just gets more and more burdened with yeah. unrepaired hurts. Oof. You know, I'm thinking again of another polarity of the person that you identify as like apology. I have nothing to apologize for. And when I get under the hood for folks who hold that protector, it's if I apologize, I'm opening up myself to be too exposed to get hurt. And then right. the other side is the folks are, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm, I did it. I'm sorry. I, I looked at you that way. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I didn't mean to bump into you. I'm sorry. You know, and it's like this over, you know, because I have to take care of you because things were and underneath the hood of that is let's keep everybody happy so they don't blow up. I mean, that's, that's a generalization, but kind of a general sense of that too. Um, it, I think, I think your documentary would, is very needed right now. I think we all need to understand. So, so kind of, I want to hear a little bit more though. What, what are some of the apologies, like the refusal of an apology? What are some of like attempts at apologies that have that fall flat that you hear in your office when people think they're apologizing? The two big ones. If I apologize, I go one down. You now have power over me. Yeah. And this is, this is something that I like to help people understand. Where did you learn that? That, you know, you said earlier, I would rather be in relationship than be right. This is part of that. Um, you know, where, where did you get the message that apologizing for your impact leaves you powerless? Because in my mind, it, it give it's so empowering to be able to own what you own yourself, you know, yeah. you have it, you have that little sign back there, own it. You know, this yeah. is, this is, I did this. Yes, I did do this. And so, you know, the backing away 
no, no, I, I don't apologize. I don't apologize because I'm going to become, you're going to have power over me is one of them or the over apology to get it over with quickly. Another big one is yes, but. Oh, the yes, buts. I'm oh, sorry, don't even. but. I'm sorry, but. Oh, the yes, buts. They make, I'm feeling <laughs> that, Tony. Having a moment of the yes, but apologies. Okay. Uh, I'm back. I'm back. Right. Or <laughs> I'm sorry you felt that way. That's another, that's yes. one where they can first, at first feels okay. And then when you really feel into that, it sounds like, okay, you're blaming me for how I'm feeling. <laughs> So that's not, that's not doesn't land. And, you know, for some people just even, you know, it's like, uh, 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 you know, can't even get the words out. And it is because of shame. I'm, I'm just, you know, it really is, it's yeah. going to mean something. And I love that exploration with people. What does this mean? And to who inside does this mean that? And where did they learn that? You know? So, you know, where did they learn it? Yeah. Great exploration for people so that it becomes more fluid to be able to say, it doesn't mean anything other than I'm, I am taking responsibility for my impact on you and I love you. And I don't, you know, I, if I had known this, I would not have done that. Mm -hmm. And then the other piece in, in the IFIO protocol around repair is, especially if it's repeated, I am going, these words, and they mean so much to me when my partner says this, I'm going to take a look at this part of myself, why this keeps on, why I keep repeating this thing that hurts you so much. This to me is very powerful part of repair. I do this, I do it, I do it for some reason, and I'm going to get with myself and find out why. And to me, that makes a very big difference. Ooh. I feel that in my body because if someone were to say that, like, man, you keep bringing this up, I need to, I need to understand. And it's like a sincere, like that in itself feels like there's repair just even in that acknowledgement uh -huh. and commitment to change. Um, and you can feel when it's sincere. It's not. Uh -huh. I do uh -huh. want to have a caveat that parts of me want, like my integrity and my values want to choose the relationship over being right. But many my parts want to say right now, they want to say we're still right, even if we're choosing the relationship. I just want to make sure that I have to negotiate with my parts saying we're right, but I know that, but we're just going to, I need some space because this relationship is really important. I just want to make sure I'm not, like, it's a huge rumble. Choose the relationship uh -huh. over being right. I just want to make sure uh -huh. I am far from <laughs> like Olympic gold at that, but it's definitely like one of those mantras that I have to choose in relationship. Um, uh -huh. because I have such strong parts to be right. And the other part of it is when I hear that repeat of like, dang, I really keep hurting you this way. I need to take a pause on that. That's really, even if it's like, I'm going to fix it. Cause I think that was for a long time. Like, how do I make your pain go away? I want to make your pain go away. What do you need right now to make it go away? Cause I'm hurting that you're hurting. Cause I hurt you. Uh -huh. You know what came up for me when you just said that about that part that once the acknowledgement of being right is, yeah. and this would be something for you to listen to that part about, but, you know, I, I just wondered, it just came into my head if it's, if it's, I want to be right, or I want to be acknowledged for my difference as well. 
Like the, the relationship is important, but I'm not feeling validated for my perspective. I, I don't know. I, it would just be, just be a question for that part at some point. Like, um, you know, if we're going to go right to, I just, the way I asked to have a need met hurt you and I want to make that repair, but is there also a need inside of you or are those of us that have that right part? You know, what's the need there? Um, to also be recognized for mm-hmm. this perspective that I think yeah. is the right. <laughs> you know? I, I know for me, there's some parts like even saying that some parts like, can we just be right without it being a reason? You know, so I got that come up right away. But when I just sat with it briefly, and then it took me to hearing other people, it's they have a strong sense of justice. They want and, and it's this sense of seeing injustice again and again, and especially rooted in what they experience is. You know, I don't like the right. word fair, so I, I prefer justice, you know, um, and sure. treated well and treated with dig- dignity. So there's this sense of justice, this, you know, and then that can tip to self-righteousness, which is so toxic. But yeah, uh-huh. that's a, and I think staying curious about when we get those flashes, you know, those strong and just understanding what are the fears and concerns of those parts that are puffing up or having to overfunction to protect with over apologizing or whatever that's the juicy yeah. stuff. And we get to stay curious about someone else if they're in it. Hey, I'm noticing you're apologizing a lot. What's going on? What are you worried right. about? Such a gift right. to give. I'm curious for you because you you run a whole training company. You have a whole right. bunch yeah. of, you have a huge staff. How, tell me about a time you addressed a relationship rupture in the training company that you lead and how that how your IFIO practice helped you and your team move through it. You know, I have been very lucky so far that there hasn't been, there have been any number series of ruptures, you know, but nothing huge. You know, I was thinking about that question that, that we have been fortunate um, to not have had like a huge, I'm trying to, I'm even trying to think, but I think, um, you know, my invitation to my trainers is we have a gorgeous model to deal with conflict. Mm. And I have an expectation with a lot of love in my heart. I have an amazing group of people that work with and for me that we will use this model to work out conflict. And as best as we can, we do. And of course I make mistakes. They make mistakes with each other. Um, but I think it's about the un, you know, the U-turn, unblending, being honest with yourself and speaking for what's happening for you is the greatest tool that we have, really. Um, and sometimes, you know, sometimes people will get into it. And my commitment to them is I will help you. I'll help you work it out. Um, so that things, and of course things, you know, this is not an, that there's intimacy within these relationships, but it's not the same as a, an intimate partnership, marriage, um, you know, love relationship. So, you know, the expectation is they're going to, we're going to all do the best that we can, but I can't think of one big momentous thing that has happened yet. Knock on wood. <laughs> Knock on wood. And I mean, probably it's an interesting sample because of your lens on conflict and the work that you do, the work that people do. So it's probably skewed. And I suspect I'm being in a lot of IFS trainings, there's often ruptures within a training 
as participants are working through that and holding space for that. Is there Uh a time you recall where there maybe was a tough experience in a training and how your Mm -hmm. team banded and supported each other in that that you could speak to? Many, (laughs) you know, many, (laughs) you know, Zoom has, Zoom has put some added pressure. I was just talking to one of my trainers um, this morning about this, that, you know, we're not connecting face-to-face in the same way with people. So um, creating the kind of safety that we need, um, you know, um, being able to talk to people one-on-one to stand at that snack table. I don't know if you've ever done a live IFS training, but, you know, you know, snacks everywhere and waiting in the line, waiting in line for the bathroom, that kind of thing. So it, you know, when people get distressed in a training, it's, it, it can be difficult on everyone because the the kind of repair that needs to happen would go so much more easily in person, face to face Mm. and in person. Um, and that being said, I, um, you know, just like IFS, we're starting to recognize the the narrowness of our lens all these years, and to really be create equitable spaces, much more diverse spaces. And you know, there have been some times where there have been microaggressions within the training, and then being willing as leaders to slow everything down and to say this is more important than just barreling through with the content and giving people room and space to talk about what happened for them and for people to provide really authentic repair. So those are some of the things that, you know, just off the top of my head are, are occurring. And of course um, we're doing lots and lots of training around that, but also using this model again can the leaders listen without collapsing or being defensive? Can the leaders receive the information and stay grounded on the inside of themselves? Mm. Can they ask their own part, you know, stay regulated, ask their own parts to step back so they can really listen to the impact that they're having? Mm. And it's very important. It's a very important value for me and all of us, I think. And it's not easy, you know, as a leader, as you know, to stay really open hearted um, in the face of, you know, some feedback, you know, some maybe some feedback that's coming from people who are badly hurt, you know. So um, using the model, using the model, using the model, that's what I would say, you know. Listening, the reps, <laughs> listening to <laughs> self and others. Yeah. Is there anything else that you would add to that on how leaders in general can manage high stakes conversations, like you mentioned, and polarized right. divides without defaulting to shame or blame or shutting down? Right. And, you know, I, when I, when you asked me to, to have this conversation with you a long time ago, I really started thinking, um, you know, this idea of an unburdened leader, actually, which I wonder if that does exist. Um, <laughs> not really. No. But I think that people that choose to take on a leadership role, and I included, um, need to continually work on themselves. Conti- this has to be a continual U-turn is, is what it is for me. You know, how to stay in leadership that is, you know, I, my, in my organization, there's a hierarchy. So how can hierarchy and collaboration live together? 
how can a leader hold the polarizations and believe that those parts of people that are polarized, if we can stay with it long enough, what's going to come out of it is better than one one position or another position to understand systems. And I do think that that's super, super important. How does the system work? Yes. Um, And who are the parts in the system and what are they bringing? Um, And to not be afraid of conflict, to be transparent and honest and, you know, move into the conflict as opposed to scoot away from it or to take a power over position, which is you're going to do what I say, stop it. You're going to do what I say. It's, it's not collaborative. So, and to continually encourage people to be able to speak their truth in non-wounding ways and help people listen to somebody else's truth, even if it's different than yours, here we are back to differences. So, um, and embrace those polarizations. I really think so, you know, and that can be hard for a leader. Why would you want to embrace a polarization? You know, mm. voices are important, right? Yes. Just not going to add anything else to that. It's powerful. Thank you. As we, as we wrap up, I'm, I'm curious about how you view a successful relationship and what do successful relationships look like to you today? And how is that different from what you were taught? Well, we could talk about that, um, you know, for, for an hour or two, but, uh, you know, I would say that it's not really successful. That's the question. Mm. You know, I, I know what you're asking, but what I would say is, is it satisfying? Is it connected? Is it what you want? And, you know, the first que- that's the first question we ask people is rather than here's our agenda for what a successful or a connected relationship looks like, we ask, we don't tell. And then the therapy develops around the wishes of the presenting parts of people. So what do you want? Because relationships, as you know, are massively changing. You know, there is no longer, um, traditional marriage is no longer something that many people, many people in a different generation than I wanted, want. You know, that there are millions of people who are engaging in polyamorous relationships. Um, You know, relationships are changing. So I, I think even now for couple therapists, even more important is why are they coming to see you and what do they want? And what would be a satisfying, mutually differentiated, you know, mutually satisfying, differentiated, differentiated relationship? What does that look like? And that's where we start. And that can change over the course of the work. It can definitely change. But people, I don't think, no, well, I don't, I can't say, but many people that I have seen over the years, if you ask, what do you want to create? What did you want to create? Blank. No. Not a question that that people have when they're embarking on a long-term relationship. So I want to know that. Yeah. So I would say mutually satisfying based on two individual human beings. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's, you know, under the context of what is the relationship. And I love the idea of what do we want to create versus this um, cookie cutter model that's been handed down and the shoulds related to it, whether it's personally or professional. I think it's just uh-huh. really opening. And, and there has to be room for that 
differentiation and difference and mutuality. Um, uh-huh. And successful relationships can also end or realign or recontract. That's right. They don't and have do, to always. They and do. do. And they do. Absolutely. Yes. And they do. And um, just because the relationship as maybe it was is no longer existing today doesn't mean it's a failure. It's we are dynamic people um, that are That's evolving right. and coming into our own in many ways too. Wonderful, Tony. Thank you so much for joining me in this conversation. I want to make sure I'll be linking to your books that you've offered for folks who want to read more about your approach and and how they can help become more differentiated and better respecters of those that they're in relationship with. So I'm excited to share that. But thank you so much for joining me in this conversation today. It was a real honor. Well, thank you for having me. And it's great to see you. Now, before you go, I want to make sure you take some key points from today's unburdened leader conversation with Tony Herbine Blank. First, conflict is a part of the gig in relationships. It's not something to be avoided, but something to normalize in relationships and embrace instead of fearing or judging. Tony also spoke at length about the power of the pause when we get activated. This helps us get clear on what's going on with us. So we can also get clear on what and how we want to communicate our feelings. So when we return to the relationship, we can be aligned with our values and still stay connected. She also reminded us the importance of understanding our stories and the burdens of relational trauma and the shame we carry so we can stay connected within ourselves and with those we're experiencing conflict. So I'm curious, how do you want to change how you respond to conflict? What does support look like so you can increase your practice of pausing before responding when activated? What are the echoes of old burdens from past relational or betrayal wounds that impact your capacity for conflict, discomfort, and difference? When we sign up to lead, we have to learn how to lead ourselves and others well. We're signing up to do the lifelong work of redefining our relationship with conflict and doing the work so we can stay present and connected within and with others, no matter how hard things get. And this is the ongoing work of an unburdened leader. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. I'd be honored if you would go and leave a review, a rating, and share this with someone you think may benefit from it. You can also find this episode, show notes, free Unburdened Leader resources and ways to sign up for our Unburdened Leader weekly email, along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com. 